Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. Here we are, back from Sundance. Finally, it felt like it was just a world unto itself, as it often does at the start of the year. A whole new spate of movies and, and conversations we'll be revisiting over the next year and, and change, if not much longer. But uh, there's still a lot for us to talk about, because the last time we recorded... We were talking about Birth of a Nation as this standout film in the U.S. competition because of this landmark deal, $17.5 million to Amazon. Uh, now it's won, unsurprisingly, the Grand Jury Prize of the festival, and that sends one particular message about the kind of film that that is. I mean, it's, it's a movie that obviously is of the moment in terms of the way that it deals with race and so forth, but I think... Uh, what what we're going to be uh, needing to track a little bit more closely is whether or not that alone is going to keep it elevated in the conversation the way it was sort of the star of Sundance. Although it sounds like the acting in Manchester by the Sea, certainly, and in Birth of a Nation, you know, those are the two films that will go all the way to the Oscars from everything, you know, just judging from the consensus around them at this point. And Manchester by the Sea won our critics' poll. Birth of a Nation was a movie that a lot of critics were not super keen on. So that fight is really interesting as well. They weren't. I got. I got the set. What's what's the what's the rating on? Uh... You can look up the ratings all you want. My feeling from talking to people was that Birth of a Nation is a movie that's very powerful because of what it's about, because of the way it's sort of designed. This is corrective to the industry. Manchester by the Sea is a different kind of movie experience altogether. It's a very kind of nuanced character study, uh, an original screenplay, great performances. It's nothing you haven't seen before. It's just things you've seen before done very well. And so that's going to carry it in one way. They could both be vying for the Oscar, but I feel like it's just going to be a much more complicated conversation after we see a lot more stuff. So it'd be But Birth of a Nation is definitely a crowd pleaser. It's a commercial movie. It's a movie that's going to go out there and do well at the box office. It has a whole other aspect to it um, where, you know, it, 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 maybe the critic, but if, if it's a real Oscar contender beyond just a, a performance or a screenplay or something, if it's a best picture contender, it needs to have great reviews too. I'm actually looking for this. I'm actually looking for it. And what's interesting, there it is. 95%, Eric. 19 reviews. 19 reviews. Huh, Which isn't okay. bad. It's okay. So that's 18 fresh reviews and one rotten. So that's a good sign. for, And it won the jury and the audience award. So that's a good sign. That movie will have a, a, a lot of expectations for it as it continues to play around wherever it's. And Searchlight has it, so they'll know what to do with it. Whereas Manchester is a movie that was bought by a company trying to establish itself, Amazon, for a lot of money. And, and that's a different kind of question mark, which is can this company capitalize on the possible awards potential of a very quiet, as I said, character-driven movie that you know I liked quite a bit. It's not my sensibility to get super excited about that kind of thing. I mean, for me, I got more excited when I saw this movie, The Eyes of My Mother. I knew you were going to bring section. that up. <laughs> hey, I, I'm happy to announce that my, my favorite... We both went to it together. My, my favorite discovery of the Sundance Film Festival was a movie that you did not hate. So there must be something uh, to it there. No, I thought it was disgusting and, and creepy in a really cool way. Oh, it's it's such a neat kind of totally like, wacko. Yeah, but it's 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 boiling down the essence of everything from Texas Chainsaw Massacre to German Expressionism. Just just really great black and white horror movie in one location that's very studied and as a first feature from a guy who's got to be 
26 years old at most. I think it's, no, it's, it's someone real, to look out for. Yeah. A discovery, definitely. That movie doesn't even have distribution yet, so that shows you kind of the disconnect between these two worlds of Sundance, as it were. Though the movie that I'm really excited to see how the world reacts to, and I know they'll have a chance to, is Wiener, which is nice to see that it won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary because there are so many other ways you could go with that category. There were certainly films that were crowd pleasers in other kinds of ways, such as Gleason about you know uh, this this uh, hockey player with AL or I'm sorry football player with ALS, but uh, the the Wiener documentary. It's just such an incredible piece of <laughs> verite filmmaking. I mean, it, you really f- feel like you're you're seeing what happened to Anthony Weiner in up close detail to the point where it's like this political farce that you could have scripted. I mean, but it, it rises above that. It's just so it's so exciting to see that kind of thing up close and also you know ludicrous at the same time. But it's coming out day and date in March. Uh, Sunday at Selects bought it before the festival. So that's a movie that, I mean, I, I can't wait to watch with a bunch of New Yorkers to see how they react. I'll be curious to see how the rest of the country reacts. I mean, it's not, it doesn't seem to me like the most obvious Oscar bait when it comes to, uh, you know, the nonfiction category. But at the same time, it's a movie that's going to keep people talking. And it is an accomplishment just from a pure filmmaking standpoint. So. Well, it was interesting on the critics' poll, while some of the artier, if you like, films were at the top, you know, Manchester by the Sea, Certain Women, which we discussed last week from... Um, you know, we, we really love Kelly Riker, you know, not always, but sometimes, um, and then, and then Christine and then birth of a nation and then the eyes of my mother that came in fifth. Yeah. The critics Um, did rally behind that one eventually. I mean, it it got out there because a lot of people had a chance to see it over the course of the festival. I mean, by the time we saw, we were some of the last to get to it. That's true. Little men. So the word of mouth was on it. Little men. And then sing street, which was the John Carney film, which, seems to have played very well. Um, I guess I, I'm just tired of that kind of coming-of-age story. And then Love and Friendship, which um, is a Whit Stillman, Jane Austen movie, uh, which, again, uh, you know, I liked as much better than his recent work, but I wouldn't have put it at the top of my of my list. And But I bet that one does well. I bet that one actually plays. And then... Jane Austen is still a commercial property on some indeed. level after all. I'm afraid so. And then Swiss Army Men, uh, which uh, just was so descriptively colorful that people just went to town with it. Well, and I the, to, and the Fitz. Army, yeah, I mean, the Fitz, Swiss Army Men, these are really outlandish movies that are doing things, I think, visually that we've never quite seen before. They're not for everybody, but they, they to me, feel more like what I want to get out of Sundance, which is largely American filmmakers doing something fresh. The Daniels, the two the two filmmakers named Dan or Daniel who made Swiss Army Men are really promising new talents, I think, and this movie is a, a statement on that level. It, it's it's absurd in certain ways, but it's also kind of beautiful and it, and it did leave an impact on me. So the division okay. the division at Sundance over this movie I think is not gonna tell the whole story. A twenty four buying that movie, investing in what I think they see as sort of like a chic element that's gonna appeal to some kind of they think you know, it will pop. They yeah, think that they, they can make the whole se- I talked to a lot of distribution people over the course of the last week or two, and they're all saying the same thing, that the competition – and, and by the way, they've been saying it for years. It's just a question of which competition and how intense has it finally become. But it's all about finding titles that they can – 
that they think they can market and pop that will bring people into the into the theaters or, or, to, or to click on them online. It's really hard to get people to pay attention to anything right now. Well, what um, I kind of loved about Sundance this year was that the New Frontiers situation with the VR headsets was so popular. That's where everybody was. Yeah, it's like all of a sudden. No question. It's not even a film festival anymore. Even know? on the last day that I was there, I went in there and there were lines. You know, you had to wait for 40 minutes to get in to see any of the popular ones. And you what, had to sign up. Yeah, that that enthusiasm, it sends a message, and I think it's smart of Sundance to capitalize on whatever's going on there. Some of the folks at the festival said maybe they'll scale down a little bit. There was a little bit too much. But it's good to represent on this technology because it's definitely about to be a much bigger deal. And the more it gets democratized, which is something that I think a lot of people at the festival were, were discussing, is the more that you have access to this, this technology outside of the festival, the more it's going to become a really popular kind of entertainment. It's, it's a very totally big varied. question still how it will be presented and what way will it be uh, marketed and sold. What struck me was how many creative filmmakers, how many people in the industry, everybody's trying to capitalize on this. They're all wrecking, like Lucy Walker was running around with her headset showing right. it to people. You know, the, the question is, can you get in and figure it out and get on board and get some money behind it? That, you know, everyone's chasing after that because they think there's some, there's some potential there. On the documentary side, um, uh, two of my favorites were in the top five of the IndieWire critics poll, and that was the J.T. Leroy story author, and then lo and behold, the the Werner Herzog. And I do love talking to Werner Herzog; he's always hilarious. Everybody feels like they've talked to Werner Herzog because his voice is just ubiquitous. It's now. so familiar. And then uh, I caught up with Life Animated, which was a really good, really solid movie that I could see being in the Oscar race later this year. Very unusual, and literally. Another one of these documentaries that, that uses animation, but would, they did it in a very beautiful, beautiful way to tell the story of this family raising an autistic child with an incredible amount of, of access uh, and following along as, he, as, this, as the uh, grown-up kid, you know, uh, navigates growing up and, and going independent. And it was, it was good. And the, the Jim Foley movie was very good, too. I could see that having some traction later on. And that won the audience prize, which tells, tells you something very explicit about the divide between what the jury saw and what the audience reacted to in that sense. But exactly. The, the, you know, the, the one movie you didn't mention is the one that won the documentary category, which is Kate Plays Christine. That's only because I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah. But I want to make sure we address it, because what I would, I would want to say about the movie in brief is it's worth noting that this was not a traditional documentary and the jury acknowledged as much. They gave it a writing award um, because it's sort of a, a staged version of this actress dealing with whether or not she can play the role of a woman who committed suicide. It's the plot of the movie Christine, which is a narrative version of that. But I think that's actually a pretty exciting situation that critics love this movie and it won this really unique prize and it signals the way in which people are starting to respond more to non-traditional storytelling. And it folds into what we're saying about VR. There's something going on just in general with the way that we relate to stories that I think this Sunday, this Sunday's lineup is reflecting, that there's some traditional Absolutely. stuff, people are investing in it, uh, you know, that, and then there's the, all these different kinds of things that are innovating outside of that. I want to talk well, to you I, about... But, one, but before we go on to that, I, I wanted to agree with you for, for a moment and also suggest that as the documentary genre... Um, evolves and matures. What I what strikes me is that what what gains traction and what becomes you know competitive and and they're very good at Sundance and at having some of the most um, lauded movies 
launched there that are going to be in the Oscar race at the end of the year. Two of the final five were at Sundance last year, uh, documentary to Oscar nominated this year, um, is, is the way that they figure out how to tell the story more compellingly, more engagingly. And it's how we all have to function in the, in the world that we live in, is how do you get people to pay attention? You tell the story better and more innovatively. That's all. Go ahead. Well, I wanted to come back to the narratives for a second because uh, one movie that I saw right near the end of the festival that other people caught on with earlier uh, that kind of fell into the more traditional category surprised me because it was a lot better than I expected based on various reactions I heard earlier, including yours. But uh, I was not expecting that James Seamus' directorial debut, Indignation, a Philip Roth adaptation, would be as compelling as I found it to be. Uh, very kind of pared-down period drama, very well acted by Logan Lerman. Uh, I, visually, I thought it was it was quite engaging, and it seems like, you know, James Seamus, who's worked with all these different kinds of filmmakers, most, uh, you know, prominently Ang Lee, has, has learned from the best, and it consolidates a lot of that stuff. I'm not saying it's a masterpiece. I, I just found it to be very And it didn't make the uh, top 20 in your uh, IndieWire Critics poll. And I would argue that that's probably because its merits are old-fashioned and more like a movie like Brooklyn or, or you know, it's it's not it, – it, it doesn't feel – it almost feels more um, – mainstream in a way than some of the stuff that the people in your Sundance poll responded to. Um, it almost I would, does, but it's not quite because there's something a little bit, you know, edgy about sort of the way that this plot unfolds. I mean, there's a, the, the sexual tension between the characters is something I, I don't think we see a lot of in studies of that period. And it also is very in tune with Philip Roth's voice, which is not, you know, an inherently commercial voice. It's not a classical voice. In that sense. Yes, but I think what 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 Seamus knew how to do as a screenwriter was to take what we thought might be a very brainy and intellectual exercise, and turn it into something very straightforward and and very accessible. You know, it's it's really um, simple. It seems simple. I mean, and it's very difficult to do that. That's tricky. That's that's harder to do than it looks. Do you if think that makes that any it's a sense. Super accessible movie though, because when I was watching, I was thinking, you know, there's this amazing scene that goes on and on with that's the, unusual with, that the, the centerpiece pas de deux uh between tracy letts and logan lerman is amazing this argument between the student and the dean of the university it's basically about religion and worldviews of sorts it's just and then it culminates in this kind of grotesque way i just I'd never seen a scene <laughs> like that. Like that could be a short film unto itself, and I and think it's it was like, a, a risky thing yeah. for 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 Seamus to to do. And he and he pulled it, pulled it off. Look, he pulled off a big distribution deal from from Lionsgate, and this is all in the context of a guy that was basically shoved out of being the head of Focus Features, uh, replaced by this upstart named Peter Schlesel, who came from Film District, which is more of a genre uh, distribution company, and. Now, as as Seamus is sort of celebrating his the open window that he took advantage of when when that happened, you know, now he's a director um, instead of just a, a an executive, a, a, an academic, and a, and a screenwriter. Um, he, you know, now they're replacing Schlesel again, and the the overhaul of of Focus Features or the struggle to find the right shape and form for Focus Features continues as uh, the specialty film market continues to implode. 
Well, that's that's an interesting way of putting it too, because it's it's like focus features seems like they they got away with so much for so long because it was it wasn't really a studio subsidiary. It was a James Seamus outfit that had a lot of autonomy and then just had increasingly less autonomy. And then they just tried to do something different with it. He was always having to answer to the man. I mean, that was not, he wasn't able to do whatever, whatever he wanted, but he, he describes it that way too. Increasingly over the last few years, it was, it was more and more corporate. Right. Which is unsurprising as is is the ultimate decision not to go forward with it as as it currently stands even. But Well, uh, they're supposedly going back to their specialty roots and they're turning it into a global specialty enterprise with acquisitions and production and and they're putting the people in charge of the global United uh, you know, Universal Pictures International, which is involved in co-productions and productions, but they came. I mean, one of them started as Seamus's assistant at Good Machine, the guy who's running it, and and uh, you know, the other one came from from Weinstein Co. So they 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 have their own bona fides at that group. It's just it's just, it just isn't going to be quite the same. Well, but what's worth pointing out is that a lot of the talented people who used to be at Focus are on a roll right now over at Bleecker Street, which Correct. had a great year last year. We talked about that before, and they came to Sundance this year with a movie called Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen, which we didn't see, but a lot of people really liked. That movie they did. Got a lot I want to see that, yeah. and it's going to come out soon, so, so we will have that like opportunity. You could read into the the, the kind of up-and-down sad story of Focus as saying necessarily something about the film market. It's more just about this particular entity and its strange relationship in a larger entity, you know, and, and, and that kind of bizarre saga isn't necessarily, you know, sending a message to other distributors that they can't be, you know, releasing those kinds of movies. I mean, Indignation got I, Well, Lionsgate has roadside, and Lionsgate is is a little more, more nimble, but... Um, I, I wonder. I mean, I, I I talked to Michael Barker. The the Sony people picked up four movies at Sundance. They picked up the Zappa documentary and the the Eagle Huntress. <laughs> you know, whatever that is. And then Equity, the woman's picture made by four women about Wall Street and and John and, Krasinski's uh, new movie. The hot. Did you see that? I didn't. Everybody seemed Neither to not did like I. it. They didn't yeah. Like it. I know. So. Sometimes we hear where people don't like things and we just don't go see them because we're busy people and we want to see good movies. So we We're trying to cut our losses. Exactly. That's right. So speaking of movies that are worth our time, let's talk about the Coen Brothers movie because I really liked it. Hail Caesar's opening this week. It also opens the Berlin Film Festival next week. Um, I actually saw it when I was out in L.A. and I've had a lot of time uh, before Sundance and, and during the festival to think about it and it, it really has stuck with me after seeing all these movies in a short span of time. I'm just really impressed with the way the Coen brothers are able to kind of look at old Hollywood as they do in this movie through their own unique lens and still kind of celebrate the grandiosity of it. But I actually, I don't even know what you think about it, Anne. I enjoyed it thoroughly uh, as, uh, you know, I, I make the point in, in some of the stuff I wrote that that the Coens are are always going to be better than just about anybody else. And if this isn't, you know, A-plus Coens, if it might be considered second-tier Coens, like lighter, more comedic, like, more frothy and fun yeah. and escapist right. and everything. So what's not to like? I'm, right. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, we did a... We did our we we updated our Cohen Brothers ranking and it falls you know in the middle someplace you know it's it's what <coughs> it's good it's fun I recommend it. 
Well, yeah, it's it is it is fun, but uh, you know, the, I think the reason why there were some signals that it, it was worth being um, uh, skeptical about this one was just because their re- comedy register is such a hit or miss proposition with Lady Killers, Tolerable Cruelty, which I thought was a dud. Those are the three bottom. Those ones. are the the bottom ones. But but this one, it seems like the levity is serving some bigger sense of kind of mystery and awe surrounding Hollywood history. <laughs> And yeah. it's kind of cool to see that as a studio movie too, because it is an auteur picture. I mean, it just feels like them. It's it's meandering. It is them, but it, it is. it's hilarious. You cannot help but be amused when there's this moment where George Clooney, at his best, in his sort of "Oh brother, where art thou?" mode, that yes. clueless Clooney mode. You know, the guy who thinks he's smart but isn't, and he's a big movie star working in this epic and everything. And he's a good movie star. It's not like he doesn't know what he's doing, but he ends up being kidnapped and he wakes up in a room full of hostile, disgruntled commies, communists. Now, <laughs> but they're writers. They're all Hollywood writers. Yeah. That's the funny part. People should look for the great Alex Karpovsky uh, cameo as, as, the, as the photographer in that in that scene. But yeah, it just like, kind of goes on and on, and you're like, is this a dream or like what is it? this like strange kind of Kafkaesque vibe going on and. He can't really figure it out, but he doesn't really try because he's just stupid. And he's spouting communist propaganda that's been fed to him. And De- Eddie Mannix, played by James Brolin, slaps him out of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a, that's a terrific kind of actor showcase, too, because it's sort of like that scene could happen at any point in the movie. It's not like it has to be a climactic moment or something. Like a lot of bits here and there. I mean, the dance numbers with Scarlett Johansson and with Channing Tatum are delightful but, you know, they, they don't necessarily serve the plot. They're just sort of... No, no, the Coens have an opportunity to fool around with how to how to do a, an Esther Williams-Busby Berkeley number, you know, with Scarlett Johansson in a skin-tight mermaid green right. outfit. Or, or right. you know, make uh, Channing Tatum, who's never learned how to tap dance, <laughs> into uh, Gene Kelly. It was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it's obviously another showcase for Roger Deakins, who's nominated right now for Sicario. So what do you think? Does having another great Coen Brothers movie out maybe help the case as he's uh, heading to the, the Nothing can beat Lebesky this year. Three years in a row, huh? Yep. That's never happened. So nope. that's kind of crazy. I mean, I think he did a fine job with the Revenant. It's it's pretty impressive. I just I, I, I would say more like, than fine job. Fine. He did. He did a oh, good, come on. He did a fine job. Fine for, I mean, job. That's damning with fake <laughs> Because I think Roger Deakins give him cru- is give more him credit for what he did. Well, tell, it, it, tell me it what he did. It was astonishing what he did. Some of the can- some of the shots are pretty amazing. I'm not sure if the movie as a whole sustains what he pulled that's off on that's on that's on in your yeah, but if we're talking but, about great cinematography i think it, it still needs to no, speak to how it no, works with the movie. no basically what you have is a production turned on its ear in the sense that in is giving everything the focus the energy the time on all the different fronts of this sprawling production is focused on giving Emmanuel Lebesky everything he needs to get the best possible shot in an hour and a half every day. But what about that that Oscar season narrative about it's their time, right? Isn't it Roger Deakins' time? That's not strong enough in his favor. He's been nominated like six times or something like that. People six? He's been nominated 12 times. Yeah. 
I underestimate, and it still seemed like a lot. And and he's and he is overdue, but it may be Hail Caesar is the one he wins for yeah, next that year. Nice. That would be nice. I mean, it's an early year release if it can sustain that kind of momentum. No, no, he's gonna get, he's gonna win one day. It'll happen. In any case, we're talking about Oscars, so it's worth talking about some of the different updates more recently that took place. I mean, one of the unique contrasts of last weekend was that while the Sundance Awards were going on, the SAG Awards were going on, there was that whole thing with Idris Elba winning for both uh, Beast of No Nation and uh, Luther. Which and a lot of people know. of color won over the course yeah. of the night. It was it was Viola Davis and, you know, two people from Orange is the New Black. And, and you know, it was it it was pretty uh, obvious that <laughs> that they were that they were going in that direction as you know birth of a nation may take the oscars next year yeah so that so that was a big deal um but it also kind of signaled certain changes to uh the direction of the race right now i mean more generally speaking we have the dgas coming up this weekend well, the race that that the SAG Awards um, forecast basically um, was that that Spotlight took the um, Ensemble Award, which is often uh, a, a you know a prefiguring of who's going to win Best Picture. So I think Spotlight is still in the lead, but what we have is a sort of tight four way race. And that's true of of the of the directors as well. And I think it's going to be George Miller for Mad Max because of that extraordinary feat that he performed, you know, with all those vehicles in the desert, you know, and pole vaults and all the crazy uh, extraordinary vision of this world that he dreamed up and made real and in an amazing way. So I think it's him. Uh, Inaritu would probably be the spoiler if, if there was anyone, uh, because those are the two movies with the most sort of scale and scope and, and degree of difficulty. Um, but in area two won last year. So it's, it's sort of hard to imagine him winning again. I mean, this makes the Iowa caucuses look like a pretty clear cut situation by contrast. You know, when you talk about a four way race, I mean, Months it's ago. Mad Max, Inuritu's, um, The Revenant, Spotlight, and um, The Big Short. And so you have these two sort of um, exposés of contemporary, uh, you know, malfeasance uh, on the one hand, you know, sort of talky movies with lots of good acting. And then you have these two almost silent movies uh, that are feats of great, uh, extraordinary visual technology. Right. A silent movie has won Best Picture before, so it's not unthinkable in that respect. I mean, it's it's actually, I mean, it's not my, I would say, my favorite year in which various kinds of movies are vying for Best Picture. I think just seeing what Boyhood was able to do last year was, was super exciting in a way that, that doesn't seem to be quite happening here with any of these movies, but it, at least there is some variety that speaks to a range of, of possibilities in, in that well, a close race is always fun. I mean, also, they're, they're, because of the SAG Awards, people seem to think that Alicia Vikander is now a lock for the supporting actress race. And I noticed that my colleagues and all these, you know, gurus of gold or gold derby or whatever tend to be he- heading in her direction for lack of anyone else to sort of make a favorite. Um, I think that's a very close and very hotly contested race. I don't think it's it's any one person necessarily. I think there could be a surprise there. I think that the most important 
uh, category at this point, as far as I'm concerned, is, is, is animated short. So I'm just going to start focusing on that <laughs> exclusively and, and hope that Don Hertzfeld wins. Uh, you're going to plug for him. It's going to be your new tangerine. Exactly. I've, I've been thinking about it more and more, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of cool to see Ex Machina in the conversation in some capacity and things like that. But man, Don Hertzfeld, go look him up. World of Tomorrow is actually on Netflix, and you can watch it in like 15 minutes. So if there's one way into the Oscar race that doesn't feel like the same conversation over and over again, man, that is the one. So All right. On that note. <laughs> we'll talk more soon, and we'll have some DGA results to, to debate soon enough. Take it easy, Ann. You too, Eric. Uh-huh.